here, I know we have some guests in the room today, and I just want to remind you that in the back of the seats in front of you, if this is your first time, second time, or tenth time, doesn't matter. I would love to invite you to take one of those Connect cards, fill it out, drop it off at our welcome desk on the way out. We'd love to give you a gift for being here. And as I understand, we almost ran out of, of, of bulletins today, and some of you may not have ever received one. And we want you to know on the inside of that, tells you about some things we've got coming up in the life of our church where you can connect with us and hang out with us, get to know us a little bit better. So I want to invite you to go through those things and look at what's coming up. We've got a big back uh, end of school bash coming up in just two Wednesday nights as our kids are getting ready to, to wrap things up. We've got some graduation coming up next Sunday. It's graduate Sunday. I want to invite you to come back. And uh, we get to continue this whole thing because the next generation is that important, right? The next generation is vital and we have to approach it like we do anything that is serious. It's life or death and we must look at our next generation that way. So today, before I get started, I wanted to take a moment um, just in seriousness uh, because today is Mother's Day and we're so thankful for every mother that's in this room. But at the same time that we celebrate and are joyful, there are some in the room that are not so much. Some of you in here have lost your moms, and that's hard. Some of you mothers have lost children. Some of you ladies have miscarried and have yet of having that joy of bringing your own child into the world. Some of you in this room have an earthly mother, but you're not connected to her. And days like today, as we celebrate, which is great, moms, we love you, but we also recognize that there's pain in the room. And so I'd like to ask you right now to bow your heads. And maybe you know somebody that fits the categories that I just fit. But aren't you thankful that in the, in the midst of absence, God has a way of putting people in our life to comfort us? And so what we want to pray right now is that God would comfort the hearts of those who have lost and who maybe today this is bittersweet as they celebrate yet mourn at the same time. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask for your Holy Spirit to comfort, to move across our room and online to those that may have lost mothers, to those that may have lost children, to those that have, may have miscarried, to those who may have had a mother but they're not in their life. Each of those can be points of tension and pain. But God, we know that you give us peace that surpasses understanding. And so God, I pray that you turn that morning today into dancing. And God, that you would comfort them, that you'd lift them up, that you would raise their head, and that, Lord, you would let this be a day of celebration. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, And so we continue our series today. Today is the fourth week as we've been working through our new mission statement. And so let me just kind of quiz you. As I say these, I'd like for you to repeat them back, all right? Can y'all do that? So I'll be kind of like a choir director for a moment. We are a place of hope. We are a people of hope. We are Ebenezer. All right, don't repeat this. So the H, the H is to help others know. The O is own faith. And the P is pursue God. So as we continue this study today, I figured like some kid would try to repeat that. You know, you tell them to repeat and they just keep repeating and parroting everything you say. I want you to take your Bible and I want you to turn 
to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Recently, there was an article entitled, Your Smartphone May Be Powering Down Your Relationship. Most of us will agree that the onset and the growth of cell phone technology, even though we're probably more connected than ever before, has actually become a wedge in relationships. And this article that was released in January, on January 10th, Ian Kenner uh, summarized some studies about the effects of technology in marriage relationships. Listen to what he said. Researchers from the University of Essex found that people who engaged in personal discussions when a cell phone was, catch this, nearby, even if they were not actually using it, reported lower relationship quality and less trust for their partner. They also felt that their partner was less empathetic to their concerns. So let me just kind of show you what that looks like. Hey, babe, I I wrecked my car today. Oh, really? Uh Uh-huh. That's nice. Other studies suggest that cell phones can distract our attention from the present moment. And that's a problem. Considering the results that the mobile mindset study found in a recent survey that three out of five U.S. smartphone users can't go more than an hour without checking their device. That 60% of us in this room, according to that statistic, can't put our phone away for more than an hour. Now, what, what does that matter? Listen to the summary. Taking a few steps further, smartphones, tablets, laptops, and all the social media that they contain and support have the potential to tear couples apart. We hear it over and over again how something that is supposed to increase our connection is actually putting wedges between people. Facebook is named in divorce documents. You'll realize that, right? If people are struggling to find intimate connection with their spouse, that trust in their relationship is down, then how can we ever expect to connect relationally with anybody else other than our spouse? How can we expect to be engaged with people who are around us, other family members, co-workers, friends? How can we expect to do that? You see, the truth is this. We miss out when we miss others. When I am not engaged with the people who are in front of me, if I'd rather be engaged and lost in this world living in a fantasy of distractions, then how can I be engaged enough to know what is going on in somebody else's life, especially the person who I am supposed to be the most connected with? And he says in Genesis that two would become one flesh. Those of you that are married know my wife and I think a lot alike now after 25 years. We, we seem to be able to complete each other's sandwiches. I mean, sentences. Sometimes our sandwiches too. See, in our world, we are living in an, increasing, in an increasing place of a lack of trust. Trust is becoming a rare commodity. And without trust, how can I connect authentically with somebody 
And without trust, how can I present to them the idea that they need to trust somebody they've never seen? If faith, if the essence of faith is trust, and I can't trust anybody else in my life, when somebody says, hey, you need to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it then becomes foreign. You see, we're being called, church, to be engaged, to be connected with those who are around us, and the world is does not want to keep us engaged. It wants to keep us distracted. And all of us at some level are guilty. I mean, if we could all put our chips on the table, I may have a big pile. Because I'm sitting here sometimes on my phone, maybe reading articles about, I mean, I watch fishing videos. I mean, I'm sitting there doing that rather than setting it aside and going, hey, Micah, let's, let's go outside and, I don't know, let's, 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 let's dig up an anthill. I don't know. I remember some very precious times growing up. I, lived, I had the opportunity to live next to my grandfather. And my grandfather had a shop and we would just go and he would tinker. I think he rebuilt his Ford tractor four times. Why? Because he just wanted to. But you know what it was for me? I got to rebuild that tractor with him. My dad was a truck driver, and so I didn't get to see him very much on the weekends. And I, I just got to confess to you, I'm not a big deer hunter, but I would go deer hunting for one reason, so I could hang out with my dad. And for us, as we are sitting here today, and we're looking at the landscape around us, we live in a lost world. But that lost world needs us to be engaged. This lost world needs for us to be connected, and connection hinges upon trust. How many of you are familiar with Stephen Covey's book, The Speed of Trust? It's a business book, and basically in the book it says this, that when trust is up in an organization or in, in a company, the time it takes to produce a product decreases and the cost decreases. But when trust is down, it takes longer and it costs more to do something. Now make a spiritual application from that. When trust is up, connection is up. Engagement is up. But when trust is down, what happens? I don't get things done. And how would I ever expect to influence somebody if they can't trust me? You see, we're being church, we're being called, you ready for the E? To extend hope. You know hope had to be in this. I mean, hope is the word. We are a people of hope a place of hope. We are Ebenezer. We exist to help others know, to own faith, to pursue God, and to extend hope, which means we come together. You see, when we, we think about uh, helping others know, we think about our head. When we think about owning our faith, we think about our heart. When we think about pursuing God, we thought about our hands and feet, but now we're thinking about linking arms and doing it together. And it makes one big, complete circle. We exist to reach people. That's why we are here. And I want to challenge us today as we plow through this passage to think about what it means to extend hope with three areas. In engagement, reaching, and serving. So down at the bottom, if you want to go ahead, I mean, you can go ahead and fill those little rocks in. We're extending hope, engage, reach, and serve. That's the three action steps to accomplish that. So I want to ask you now, if you would, to stand with me 
as we read from the fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians, starting in verse 16. Verse 16 hinges upon the context of the chapter, which I'll go back and explain in just a minute. But we have to set up the rest of the chapter. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, that is, in his life, in his, in his uh, crucifixion, yet now we no longer know him this way. Why? Because he's been raised from the dead. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, not old, not renewed, but new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry or the service of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, say therefore. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making appeal through us, we beg you. Did you catch that? We beg you, be reconciled to God. He made him, Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's pray. And it's you. Father, it's you alone who have done these things for us. Our lives are not possible were it not for your son coming and dying on the cross that we might be reconciled, made new in in you. And so God, as we stand here today, God, I pray you motivate it and move us in a fresh way to see this lost world and to do whatever you would call us to do to reach people in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. So as we burrow through this this passage, if you notice, there are four points, but we only have three stones. And so I want to unpack those stones as we begin to go into this latter part of chapter five. But to do do that, I want you to make an observation first. If you look at chapter five, you're going to see that almost every other sentence starts with either the word for or therefore. Paul's making a lot, he's drawn a lot of conclusions that are synchronized. It's like, if this, then this. How many of you remember logic or maybe in, in algebra, you studied some of those principles, if A, then B, and B, then A. You remember all those things? It hurts your brain. Well, it's the same thing. You're going to see this flow, if A, then B. Well, if B, then C, and if C, then D. He's, he's going to draw a lot of conclusions. But it begins by understanding that the book of Second Corinthians is about trust. The Corinthian church is questioning whether or not Paul is a valid apostle. Whether or not they should trust him. Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians as an address to problems that were going on in the church. Just horrendous sin that was occurring. If you go back and study where you had a man who was having an affair with his own mother-in-law and and people uh, showboating at communion. I mean, there's just all kinds of just weird things going on. And he called and he said, I'm going to set you straight. But now he's writing the appeal and saying, look, look, we're in this together. My ministry is an extension of you. And so in chapter one, Paul explains why he didn't come back to them quickly. 
because he didn't want to come back and get onto him again and cause sorrow. The word sorrow is huge in this book. If you ever want to do a word study, that's a great word to study in the book of 2 Corinthians is sorrow. And he said in quote, he said, I'm sparing you by not coming. But in chapter 2, he begins to actually praise them because they had disciplined a man in the church. They, they responded to what he asked them to do, but now they had taken it too far. And he said, look, don't make him so sorrowful that you push him away. If he's repenting, bring him back. And he said, because, because I don't want Satan to have a foothold in your church. And then in chapter 3, it's interesting because he says, he, he then shifts to this idea that the Corinthians were, were asking him or maybe asking him for a letter of recommendation. You're like, what? Back then, they, they, would, they would have these letters that would say, hey, I'm connected to so-and-so, and this is where I'm from. And there were other people coming into Corinth and were preaching. Some were Judaizers, who were Jewish people teaching Jesus plus something else. And so he is trying to address, look, I don't need a letter from Jerusalem. I don't need a letter from any of the other apostles. You are my letter. I came to your town and I preached Jesus and you were saved and it was affirmed by the Holy Spirit. I don't need a letter. I, I mean, we could get up every Sunday and talk about our degrees or our titles and different things like that. That's, that doesn't matter. What, what affirms ministry is the move of the Holy Spirit. And that's what he was trying to remind them of. So then he gets to chapter 4. And we kind of get to the crux of what, the, what issue they have. They see Paul and all the things that Paul has been through, all the suffering, and they're like, I don't want nothing to do with that. They see the imprisonments. They see the beatings and all these different things. And they're saying, you know what? He wouldn't be suffering if he was legitimate. Paul associates suffering with his identity in Christ, that the world would see Christ in his suffering and that the Corinthians, even though they may see it as bad, Paul says, it's for your good. But then he gets to chapter 5 and he begins to shift this idea that the suffering he's enduring doesn't compare to what's to come. He starts to point their attention to heaven, the goal, the prize of eternity. No suffering, he says, compares to what's to come. And this must be our motivation as well. Paul claimed to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. He did not come up with fancy ministry tactics, but he ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this must be our charge, our cry, to know Christ and him crucified. That must be our battle cry. Well, what are we fighting if it's a battle cry? We're pushing back demonic forces to win those over that Satan has claimed. We're pushing back the lostness of the world, the darkness of the world as we live out our life. Suffering is a part of that because this world rejects the message that Jesus brought. But as Paul goes on in chapter five, he begins to draw a conclusion about the reality of suffering and the glory that is to come. Again, I want you to notice the many uses of the word for and therefore. Verse one, he says that this temporary body doesn't matter. Suffering pales in comparison in the suffering that Jesus endured on the cross. Then in verse 2, he, he says, for our body yearns for a new body. When you get saved, you ought to feel like you're not at home. This world is not our home. We're living for a world that is to come. 
That's the essence of our faith. And then in verse number three, he says that this yearning should produce living that reflects the future. Then you get to verse six, and you get the first therefore. And he says, putting suffering in perspective, he says, I have bold confidence about two things. What is my body anyway? I got a new body coming. I've got a new life coming. And here's the thing, if you haven't left this life, God's got you here for a reason. Folks, look at me. If you're wandering, when I say wandering, I mean with an A, wandering, confused about what God has for your life, it starts at the cross. He has a purpose for you to reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every one of us. And when we get that in our DNA, when we lock our arms, when we come together to extend the hope of Christ, nothing will stop that. Because it'll be a move of the Holy Spirit, not a move of us. Does that make sense? God's knitting us together. He's brought us together. May, May 14th, 2023. And I can't wait to see what God wants to do with our body. Do you? Are you expectant that God can still do miracles? Are you expectant that God can still do things beyond anything that we can ask or imagine? And that's what he's putting in front of them. He says in verse 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. Something we can't see, but something that God leads us to do. And then in verse 9, he says, therefore, because of this, let's be pleasing to God. Paul is not concerned in any way about pleasing the Corinthians. He's not, he's not concerned about the way he looks. He's not concerned about the way he talks, the way he sounds. He's worried or concerned about pleasing only one. Is that your cry? Is that your desire? To be pleasing to an audience of one? Because then he gets to verse number 10 and he starts putting some practicality to this. Because in verse number 10, he brings up the Bema seat. Say Bema. I just want to hear you say it. Bema seat of Christ is this judgment seat. It's not judgment of lost versus saved. This is the Bema seat, the rewards judgment that we will all face. Where God will reward you for the deeds that you do here in the flesh. And he, then he says, because of that, we're going to face this judgment. Therefore, because we're going to be judged, we seek to persuade men, to reach men with the gospel. That's what drove them. They know they're going to stand before God someday and give an account of all the things that they did. And that God is beckoning each and every one of us to be a participant in the gospel. And that is why extending hope is so valuable. It's so important to be that last phrase in our mission statement. Folks, we have been raised up as a gospel light for Tekoa, Georgia. Do you believe that? Do you want to live that? Because if we don't want to live that, then we're not fulfilling what God has called us to do. He says to the Corinthians, you ought to be proud that I'm suffering. That sounds weird, doesn't it? If one of us walked out here today and got beaten outside because of our faith, what would we do? He's saying, you ought to be proud that I got whipped three times by the Jews, that I was shipwrecked, snake bit, beaten with rods. You ought to be proud of that. Why? Because he was pressing into the darkness. And so let me give you 
those three points kind of quickly. The first one is this. We must be engaged to extend hope. This is a cancer. This is a cancer. It's a tool, but it's also a cancer. When we let this rule our life, when we let little things come between us and being connected relationally with others, it's a deterrent. It's a divider. And God is calling us to make preference of those who are around us. In fact, I, I want to read a verse to you. Don't worry about turning there. It's in your notes. But in Romans chapter 12, we were there last week with verses 1 and 2. I want you to listen to verse number 10. One little short phrase. It says this, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. That is not a complete sentence. In fact, it is, it is, it is a participle that leans back to verse number nine that starts out like this. It says, let love be without hypocrisy. The main word of this whole paragraph is the word love equals. And he begins to describe all the way down through verse number 13 what love looks like. And he gets to verse number 10. He says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. In fact, you see the word in this phrase, Philadelphia. Y'all know what Philadelphia means, right? City of brotherly love. And in fact, what he says, to brotherly love into one another I'm going to say it in the Greek because I love saying it. Philostergos. You're like, what? Yeah, it's a compound word. It's two forms of love. He says phileo, that's, that's the brotherly love part. Storge is motherly love. And he's put those two things together, which literally reads, love is into brotherly love to one another be devoted and nurture. You see, we are called... I don't know a better definition of engagement than that. To be devoted to one another in brotherly love that is concerned about someone's growth. We saw these mothers and these dads up here. When a baby comes into this world, it is absolutely helpless. It cries when it needs to eat and when it needs to change. Right? And if we don't assist, that baby is, is in a world of hurt. That baby will not survive without the nurture of a mother. The lost people around us will never come to know Christ unless we get a conviction of nurture. We must be engaged. We must be engaged. And we must believe in it so much, kind of like a pyramid scheme. You know, you've seen people that, that sign up for some of these products. They, they make you believe they believe in it. They, they could sell you snake oil, right? And you'd believe in it. You know, I, I was looking at um, some, some things to prevent motion sickness. And I, I read about these patches. Well, I didn't buy any because it was herbal. I'm like, that ain't strong enough. I'm sorry. But I was going to put these patches on my ear to keep from getting seasick. Well, I didn't buy them. But I mean, if you read the comments, this, this one lady was like, oh yeah, I didn't throw up. I was still dizzy, but it really helped me. I'm like, what? I don't want to walk around nauseous all day long. I want to feel good, you know? But you know, they'll find these pyramid schemes and they'll, they'll show the product. They'll post it on social media. They'll show you a video of them putting it on. They signed up to sell it because they believed in it. And they'll post regularly, call friends, send letters, host parties, give giveaways, and all this stuff so you will buy their product because they believe in it. 
Do you believe in the product of the gospel? Do you believe in the gospel so much that it drives your life, that it's like water to your soul, that when somebody comes up to you and asks, hey, what's the difference in your life? You say, Jesus Christ. You don't have to make it complicated. Open the door by being engaged because the second point, if we're going to be engaged, we, we will reach people. We must reach in order to be engaged. You cannot live in a bubble. We're not bubble boys. We can't surround ourselves in cellophane wrapping. We must reach to be engaged. Look back at chapter 5, verse 18. Now, all these things are from God. What things? The new life. You're a new creature. All of that comes from the Lord who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the service, just keep that word in the back of your brain, of reconciliation. Namely, Christ was in, God was in Christ reconciling himself to the world, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the logos, the word of reconciliation. It's the same word used to describe Christ in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And that word came and took on flesh, died on the cross, was raised again, and now in us... We have this ministry of reconciliation. And what Paul would say is this, look at the bruises, look at the cuts, look at the bleeding. In my body, I'm bearing the scars of the crucified Christ, but in my living, I exemplify his resurrected life. We're like walking communion. Did you get that? We're like walking, when we take communion, we take the bread and we eat it to, to exemplify his beatings. His whippings, his blood, I mean his body. And then we take the juice to represent his blood. You and I, as we live a life embedded in the gospel, are walking around like communion. That in our bodies we're bearing the marks. Bearing the marks of the suffering of Christ. But in our living by the Holy Spirit, we're tapping into the resurrected life. You see that? Have you ever seen that? Have you ever even thought about that? If we press into the darkness, it's going to be hard. It's going to hurt. There's going to be things that come against us, but it's worth it. Because as he said in verse 16, I'm not known by this body anymore. I've been clothed with that, what comes from on high. I've been filled with the Holy Spirit of God. My life is different. I'm a new creature. And I need to live as a new creature. And so we get to this third one. We engage and reach when we serve. We engage and we reach when we serve. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He was warning the Corinthians here, whoa, wait a minute. You're stepping out of line. You're starting to buy into a false gospel. You're going down a wrong path. You need to focus on what Christ did on the cross and be reconciled to God. Be reconciled through Christ by what he did on the cross because he said this in verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. No one in this room came in today with any righteousness that you could offer to God on your own. The only righteousness that you have to offer is the righteousness that Jesus bore on that cross. The sinless one 
who died to take your sin away and the life that you and I now live. We live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. And you know how that's best exemplified? The same way Jesus did, by serving. I don't care what that looks like. When we're willing to put other people in front of us, when we're willing to try to build a trusting relationship with somebody, you don't do that arrogantly. You do that humbly. You offer that cup of cold water. Why? Because it opens doors. And when we serve with the intent of building trust in us, in our church, we do so so that we can point them to God and maybe, just maybe, they put their trust in Him. You see, we talk about outreach and missions. We talk about ways we serve in the church and outside the church, but the only difference is geography. Serving is a lifestyle. <laughs> it's funny, yesterday, was, I think it was, yeah, it was yesterday, um, Laura and I were getting on a ride, and as I got on the ride, this lady, I don't know why, she said, are you in the military? And I said, no, ma'am, why? And she, and it, it was because I was saying, yes, sir, no, sir, and yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And I probably shouldn't have said this, but uh, I said, no, ma'am, I'm a southerner. <laughs> she didn't say anything else to me. <laughs> but you know what? I, 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 after we got off the ride, I felt guilty. I told Laura, I, I said, you know, I, I shouldn't have maybe said it that way. I thought I was being funny, but it shut the door. You see, we've got to be consistent in our lives as we're engaging people about what we say and what we do. I mean, I was taught to hold doors open for women, to let the women go first. I was taught those things. I was taught to say yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. Why? I want to present myself friendly. <laughs> you know how you win? You know how you, hey, I, I, got, this, I got this real, this, this will change your life. You know how you, you win more friends? Be friendly. How many of you parents have ever told your kids, if you want a friend, be a friend? If we want to win people, if we want them to trust us, we must show ourselves friendly because of what Christ did. I love what N.T. Wright said, and this is where I got this idea about the living communion. N.T. Wright said, what the whole passage involves then is this idea of a covenant ambassador. That word ambassador is the same word we get elder. Someone experienced and wise who represents the one for whom he speaks in such a full and thorough way that he actually becomes the living embodiment of the sovereign, or perhaps, in light of this passage, the dying embodiment. We should become so much like Christ that if you go back to chapter 2, he talks about a fragrant aroma, that people can smell Christ on us. That's what he's beckoning and calling us to do, and we show that in how we serve. Why? Why should this matter? Today, as you're sitting here, you're probably looking at me like going, all right, I get this. You, you want me to be engaged. You want me to, to commit to reaching people. You, you want me to commit to serving. I get that. I'm a preacher. I'm supposed to beckon you to do that. But why should you be concerned? Why should you be concerned about this mission statement that we just presented to you? Because the world relates God to us. Because we are the body of Christ, and we can't expect the world to believe and trust in God if they can't trust in us as well. That last point, we make a difference because we're new. We make a difference because we are new. We need to go back to our core identity, which is this. I am a sinner. 
but I am a sinner that is now saved by grace. He has taken my sin away. He has put his spirit in me, and I am a new creature. And see, we don't understand sometimes. We think Satan is just always over there tugging on and saying, hey, once you go smoke this, drink this, do this, do that. You know what Satan does mostly? He goes, who do you think you are? Look at where you screwed up. Look at what you said. Look at what you did. What kind of Christian are you? Don't let Satan beat you down. You stand firm in that new identity, in that identity that you are a new creature, that the old is gone. Put it where it's supposed to be in the past and live in the new things. And when we do that and we link arms and we come together, we have a way that we can extend hope. So I have three questions for you today. What distractions are keeping you from being engaged? We live in a busy world. We live in a busy world. I had the opportunity this week to celebrate my 25th anniversary with Laura. We got to unplug. And all the way home yesterday, we were talking about, let's let home be there when we get there. Because we started thinking about work and all the things that encompass our life. We live busy lives. What distractions are keeping you from being engaged? Maybe family, since this is a day of child dedications, family, why don't you dedicate with your family that at supper time, these things go in a box. TV goes off, the watches go away, and you just eat supper together. What fears are keeping you from reaching others? Maybe you just say, I just don't know what to say. Just say Jesus. We were standing in line yesterday at another line. This, this wasn't the same woman that, that I told her I was a southerner. Um, this was different. We started, this woman asked us, because she saw our, our, we had buttons that said 25 years, and she said, how did you make 25 years? And we just kind of looked at each other, and I said, Jesus Christ? That's why she didn't kill me 20 years ago. No, Jesus Christ, he committed to me his life on a cross. And I want to live in that same way, so I've dedicated my life to her and I can't wait to celebrate our 50th if God gives us both life till then. And if we were to make it to our 75th, we'd be really, really old. But if we did, if we did make it to 75, she's mine for life. She is mine for life. And, and for these children we dedicated today, the greatest chance they have for faith is moms and dads that stay together. That's why we frown on divorce. I mean, some of you have been through that and it's awful but that's why we discourage it because these kids' identity is wrapped up in the strength of the mom and dad's marriage. So if you're having problems in your family life, the greatest thing you can do is go seek out counseling to strengthen your marriage so you can be there for your kids. And dads, you are the spiritual leaders of your household. Step up. Because your first mission field to reach is your kids. And model, model what you want to see your kids doing. And finally, my last question is this. What obstacles are keeping you from serving? What excuses are you making? So I'm excited. Those are heavy questions, but I'm excited because we have a mission. And our mission is to give hope to Tekoa. Are you ready? Are you ready to help others know? Are you ready to own your faith? Are you ready to pursue God? And are you ready to extend hope? I am. And I'm excited today, too, because I get to announce something new. Starting in August, our Wednesday night adult Bible study is going to change. 
we're going to go to an elective class structure. And in this structure, we're going to offer, we're going to have four quarters over the course of a year, eight-week quarters. And so I, we've got a, I got a slide here. I'm going to get to announce to you what our classes are going to be starting August 9th. We'll have an opportunity over the summer for you to sign up for these. But, but uh, Brother Fred's going to be teaching a class called Shape. And notice that's green. Green is always associated with extending hope. So he's going to talk about how God designed you and gifted you and equipped you for ministry. Brian and Kelly Aiken are going to be teaching a parenting course. I can't wait to see. Notice that one is purple. That's about helping others know. And then this one is in red, which is owning our faith. See the colors, only four colors. Joan Warner is going to be teaching over two quarters, a a study in Genesis, like an in-depth study. So that one's going to be awesome. And then Patrick and Leanne Weaver are going to be teaching financial peace. That's in blue. Remember, we talked about sacrifice when we talked about pursuing God, how to manage your finances. And then this last one I put in purple because I'm going to be teaching what I call freedom class. And the conviction behind that is, is that when we become a Christian, sometimes we've got a whole lot of world stuck to us. Dealing with grief, dealing with addictions, dealing with our past. And that's going to be the class that I'm going to be offered. Five courses spread out across that spectrum. So now we're going to this last slide. We've had a lot in our service today, haven't we? But it's been good because I, I want you to stand up with me. And I would love if you would just, just, just go along with me for a minute And that as I read these, together as the church, let's declare these as our cry. That we are a place of hope. That we are a people of hope. We are Ebenezer. We exist to help others know. Own faith. Pursue God. And extend hope. And today I believe God is challenging each and every one of us to a next step. So I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And Father, as we come to this, this time of reflection, as Fred and Crosby and I stand down here in front to, to receive people to pray, maybe they don't know Christ and they want to get their relationship with Christ right. Or maybe they just have some struggles in their life and want to be prayed for. Lord, that's what we're down here for. And so I pray, God, that you'd move on here. Maybe some people in this room need to come and pray and say, Lord, we're putting Ebenezer on the altar because, God, we want you to use our church. We want you to move in us. We want to see lives changed. God, let that be our cry, to only know Christ and him crucified. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.